Good morning, folks. This is Dave Harvey on a rainy morning here in Tallahassee, Florida, and we're here for the next edition of the Am I Called podcast. Many Christians find it hard to talk openly to others about their experience of same-sex attraction, and that's at least part of the reason why our next guest has such an important voice to Christians today. Sam Alberry is the Associate Minister of St. Mary's Church in Maidenhead, which is, by the way, just west of London, England. Sam is not only a pastor, but he is single, an author, and he struggles with same-sex attraction. Sam, it's an honor to have you with us today. It's good to be with you. Now, Sam, you're a pastor who has openly acknowledged your struggles with same-sex attraction, and uh, many people, by the way, are grateful for your honesty, your humility. But I'm curious, did, did did your struggles affect the way you wrestled with your call to ministry? Uh, they they did yes. So for for many years, this was an issue I I did not tell anyone about. Um, as a as a Christian, I uh, was worried that it was an issue I I wasn't meant to be struggling with. That the Christians weren't meant to experience this kind of thing. So I was nervous of telling people anyway. And during the same time, I was sensing um, the call to to ministry. It seemed to be how the Lord had, had gifted me. It seemed to be what, what my, my church were encouraging me into as well. And so that added another layer of, of what felt like risk in terms of if I, if I told people about this struggle, would they, would they want me to be going anywhere near ministry? Would they want to know me at all? So I was, I was worried I might lose friendships and I was worried, yes, I was, I was worried it, it might mean I, I couldn't do the work I was sensing God was putting on my heart to be doing. And and how did you how did you break through that? I mean, what were the steps that you took in order to emerge from that and, and end up in ministry? Well, I, it was it was desperation more than anything else. Um, I I was at a stage where, and this is often the case when when you have a sort of a secret uh, struggle, a secret issue in in your life. It we're not designed to to, to carry these burdens on our own. And I was getting to the stage, this was in my kind of early to mid-twenties, where I was I was just conscious that I, I couldn't cope with this issue on my own. It was just becoming too painful. And I was aware I, I needed other Christians to to be able to walk with me through this. I needed people to, to know. I needed people to pray. It was just causing me such misery at that point. So it, I really didn't have a choice from that point of view. Um, and I I sort of nervously told my 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 pastor at the time, who was terrific, absolutely terrific in the way he he responded and just thoroughly encouraged me to to share about the issue with with close friends and to make sure I had good support and uh, affirmed that it it didn't affect my desire to be doing ministry at all. Sam, now you you mentioned burden and, uh, you know, it seems to me that there is uh, an added burden of of shame or perhaps condemnation that uh, that someone may have to negotiate with these particular struggles because they're viewed societally as a a less respectable sin let's say so I'm just curious how has the gospel helped you with that that experience well certainly sharing with friends with Christian friends, was a key part of that because one of the great blessings of of being open with with people close to you about an issue like this is it, it puts the issue 
in the cold light of day. You can you can see it in a bit more of a kind of biblically objective way. And uh, when when a when an issue is is secret, it's easy for you to get it out of proportion to to feel as though it is all consuming, that it is the worst thing in the entire world. So actually, just the process of sharing with good friends around me and seeing how they responded helped me to get this issue into perspective. Um, it wasn't the end of the world. You know, I remember thinking when I shared with my pastor that first time, I, I remember thinking, I'm, I feel like I'm about to burst into flames or the ceiling will fall down the moment I mention this thing. But actually, the, the way people responded just showed me it, it was, it's just a, I'm just a normal sinner. And I have a particular kind of sin that I struggle with, but it, it's no better or worse than what my friends struggle with. And so the people of God responding to, to me, sharing it with them, really helped me get it in, into a kind of biblical perspective. Um, and obviously thinking through it myself as, as a Christian, teaching on it, um, trying to get my own thinking straight on it, reinforce that as well. Um, it, it's, it's a... All of us struggle with sin. All of us are sexual sinners. All of us are broken in our sexuality. All of us are, are attracted to things we shouldn't be. And uh, this is just one expression of that. And, and we're all called to serve a Savior who, was, who can identify with us in our experience of, of shame. I mean, he was abandoned by all. He was beaten and mocked and, and crucified. And so he... He, he identifies, and I love that Hebrews reference, he sympathizes with us uh, in understanding the experience of shame. And, uh, and so when we flee to him, he, he meets us there. It's a great encouragement. It, he's just a wonderful savior to pray to. Sam, how would you encourage a, a guy who may be listening, who feels called, but just assumes that his desires, because he struggles with same-sex attraction, these desires just disqualify him? How would you encourage him? I think I would probably say to him that if, if, being if, if experiencing sexual temptation disqualifies us from ministry, I don't think there would be many people in ministry. Um, and sin is, is sin. All of us are, are broken sexually. This is, this is just one type of, of sexual brokenness. It's one type of, of many um, every pastor I, I love to read and I love to listen to struggles on some level with, with sexual temptation. And so it's not the presence of temptation that is, that is potentially disqualifying. It's how we respond to it, whether we are standing faithfully under temptation, whether we are seeking to, to live in, in a godly self-controlled way. So, it, t temptation is normal. We're, we're to expect it. it. It's how we respond to it that shows whether we are living faithfully. Um, but if if the presence of temptation disqualified us, then we would have no pastors. Yeah, and I, I like the way that you're you know you're normalizing the experience, and uh, you know by understanding it and applying it to, just to the area of sexual temptation, which I think I think every man listening can identify with it. It seems like there's there's something inside of of many guys or even many ladies, many Christians, that says that uh, I I know that this is about sexual temptation, but there's also something more that seems to be at stake. I know this is not merely about uh, civil rights or sexual preference, but there, there's something else that seems to be going on here in the church, 
um, that's that's bubbling up to the surface. I'd, I'd like to get you to speak to that, Sam. You know, what what is at stake here um, in the discussions of uh, of homosexuality these days? Well, a, a huge amount is at stake. Um, this is this is but the symptom of I think the, the deeper issues that are that are facing us at the moment. Um, what is at stake? I, I take it is the gospel because. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6 that the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he, as he then unpacks that, one of the examples he gives us is, is those who practice homosexuality. So the gospel is at stake with this issue. Um, if, we, if we turn around and, and start to affirm what the Bible prohibits, we are sending people to destruction. So the, the, the gospel is at stake at, at that level I think as well, this issue matters because what it comes down to is do we we believe that God's word is good and do we believe that God's word is clear? Um, God's word is is always good. It's not always easy and it is costly for any of us. But do we believe that fundamentally that God's word is good and therefore do we have confidence that the gospel is good news for any kind of person? Uh, my my concern and, and the reason I, I first started being more public about, about my own experiences on this issue was simply because I was sensing a lot of evangelicals losing confidence in the, in the gospel when it came to this particular issue and feeling as though we didn't have a good word to give people. Yeah, the go- um, the gospel. What I, what I like about what you're saying is that the you know the gospel is good even when our desires begin to skew as a result of living in a fallen world and having the the reality of fallenness within us and uh the gospel becomes even more relevant to us as we're uh as we're encountering and experiencing the effects of of sin i think so i think one of the other things we're seeing and this this issue is doing us good um because it, it's highlighting areas where i think we may have been Week in recent years, and I think one of those areas is we've 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 undertaught the role of sacrifice in normal Christian discipleship, um, and so we we've sort of we we've made it a, a, an easier thing to do. We, we've sort of almost implied that the gospel just slots in with with where you were going anyway in life. Why do you think Why do you think that's happened, Sam? What is it about the way Christians are understanding you know the walk that sacrifice is not included? I think it's probably because over the last few decades, most of us in the West live in an, in an affluent context. We're used to life being pretty comfortable. Um, and up until just recently and, and in the near future, I'm sure, we've, we've not had major opposition. And so it has been easy to live a kind of respectable, comfortable, affluent Christian life. And uh, our culture is all about comfort uh, at the moment you're, you're feeling unhappy with something you change it um, and yeah. so we've kind of got this societal expectation that life should be easy and happy and therefore it's very easy for that to seep into our our view of the Christian life and to think well if I'm not happy in the Christian life that's because God's not keeping his end of the bargain um, and, and it seems to disincline us from to want to to fight when something is at stake, uh, like within this issue. Exactly. And I think one of the reasons it's, it's caused us problems recently is because we then come across this issue of homosexuality. We, and then all of a sudden we feel like we're, we're asking other people 
to make a sacrifice that we haven't been making, if that makes sense. Um, and so one of the reasons I think Christians have been wobbling on this issue is it feels like the cost of discipleship is too high for, for this particular group of people. Whereas in reality, we've just underestimated the cost of discipleship for everybody else. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I think about the, the, uh, the, the stake and the cost, another application or implication or entailment of, of, of this would be just in the, the definition of marriage itself, you know, the definition of marriage as outlined in, in Genesis 1 and 2 of one man and one woman and, and, and therefore the integrity of, of, of Genesis 2 to influence particularly Christians in how they understand marriage, that marriage only makes sense uh, within Genesis 2. Um, because if if that's not if that's not guiding us, then 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 why stop at same sex unions? You know why not unions of multiple partners or you know or, or or other kinds of creative options among man and 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 whoever. So yeah. it seems to have a, a a vast effect on that as well. It is, and it is therefore hugely significant that it is to Genesis two that Jesus goes in his own teaching on what marriage is and why it matters. So Sam, what what expectation should we be holding out to someone who we're witnessing to, who has same-sex attractions and uh, and, and we're, we're calling them to follow Jesus? What, what expectations can we hold out for them on what conversion actually does in a person struggling in this way? Is the message, come to Christ and he'll take away these desires, or is the message, you know, something less, something more? How would you respond to that? Um, it, is, it is something far, far more than that. Um, the, the message is, come to Christ and he will make you new. Um, we know that is, that is the case. We, we receive new birth, new life. Through him we're given a new self, a new heart. Our mind is renewed. So on one level, change is promised. Um, but it may not be the immediate change that we are we are looking for. So I don't think that the Bible promises that our sexual desires will necessarily change. I don't think we can say to someone, if you become a Christian, then, then you will inevitably move from same-sex attraction to, to opposite-sex attraction. I don't see that being promised in the Bible. Um, but what we are promised is that we will become more like Christ we will become more like the person God has made us to be. And therefore, even if we still feel um, a sense of, of same-sex attraction, the, the real promise is that we will become more and more faithful in the way that we respond to that and, and seek to, to follow Christ through that. Um, I remember saying to somebody once, and I hope it, I hope it, didn't, I hope it doesn't come across as flippant, but if, if I woke up tomorrow and I, I had no same-sex attraction and all I experienced was opposite-sex attraction, I would still be struggling with sexual temptation. It would go from one, one kind of sexual temptation to another. So in that sense, I, I would much rather just be, be someone who is growing in holiness rather than thinking I've got to change my sexual desires from this type to that type. Yeah, in other words, every, every Christian is going to spend the rest of their life fighting a war with some kind of proclivity, some kind of inclination, some, some set of desires that's going to war to take them down. 
And uh, so, yeah, and I think I would, I would be nervous of him. I'm, I'm going to sort of try and phrase this rightly. I'd be nervous of implying that heterosexualism is a is a necessary entailment of sa- sanctification. That to become more Christ-like, you have to become more heterosexual. I don't, I don't see that in the Bible. Obviously, God's design is is for our is for sexual expression to take place within the covenant of a man and a woman. But actually, it is it is faithfulness to Jesus in the in the face of temptation that is that is the key thing here. So, how should how should we as believers relate to? the distinction that seems to be made, I think about Romans 1 as an example, when it's, when it's defining um, homosexual desire as unnatural. W- would you say that all desires, all sinful desires are in some way unnatural, or is there another way we should look at that? I think I, think I would say that because we, all, se- all sinful desire is, is contradicting some aspect of God's design for us. Um, it is not lining up with the people that he he made us to be. It's any sinful desire is us being out of sync with the people God wants us to to be and made us to be. Um, I think same sex desire is a particularly vivid expression of that, and it, that may be why Paul zeroes in on it in, in Romans one. It's a particularly vivid example of exchanging what we were designed for for something that we're not designed for. Um, but I don't think it is unique in that. I think any sexual desire that is outside of God's design is is going to be unnatural in, in one way or another. Yeah, I think that's really important to uh, you know to, to understand, to to pick apart, to portray for the church because homosexuality is certainly stigmatized in a way that heterosexual sin, promiscuity, is not. And I think in part that's due to the way that Romans 1 is, uh, is viewed, is interpreted, the hermeneutics of it that displays it as a or, – or understands it as a unique display of fallenness, that there's a unique character to homosexual sin that is not present with, with other sins. Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, I was, I was talking to someone yesterday and he was, he was telling me that – um, he 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 came across a an instance of of Christian counselling whereby someone with same sex attraction was encouraged by a Christian counsellor to look at heterosexual pornography and to try and find arousal in heterosexual pornography as a way of trying to quote cure their own same sex attraction and that and that just. I mean, but the, the guy who was telling me about this was appalled by it. I was, I was completely shocked by it um, because it implies, well, it implies that one kind of sin is absolutely fine and natural, but the other kind of sin is, is not. And um, I take it that, that promiscuity within a, in a heterosexual realm is, is unnatural. God hasn't designed us to have multiple sexual partners. He hasn't designed us to, to lust after many people of the opposite sex. And so all of these kinds of sin contradict the way God has designed us to live. Same-sex attraction is one expression of that. It is not the, is not the only expression of that, but it is a, perhaps the most vivid um, expression of that. But it's very clear from, from other teaching in the Bible, not least the Sermon on the Mount, 
that heterosexual lust is is not better because it's heterosexual. It's not kind of less sinful for that reason. Yeah, that that's very good, Sam. Um, you know, as we were as we were talking about the uh, the expectations that we could that we could hold out for somebody struggling with this and coming to Christ. Um, as you're talking here, I'm thinking about a whole other one, and that is just just uh, not necessarily change of desire, but but the power to to fight those desires. I think about you know Titus two, where where it says the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So there's a sense where the grace of God operates. The grace of God is first embodied in Christ, but then it operates in our life in an ongoing way by training us to fight these ungodly passions and to, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual, and then to replace them with with, uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, desires that move us towards God. Exactly. And that's not to say, by the way, that God can't change someone's sexual desires. I've, I've come across instances where people's sexual desires have changed dramatically. But um, I don't see that being promised in the Bible. And the thing that is promised in the Bible is is what matters the most, which is that we do become more and more like the Lord Jesus. And actually, it's not so much that my... It, it's It's having a newer and greater desire for him that is the real change that we we pursue. Sam, how can how can pastors that are leading churches make the play make the church a, a place a, a safe place for those who who might struggle in this way? I think in a in a number of ways as we've we've already discussed there there can be a, a particular stigma attached to this particular form of sexual temptation. So I think it, one of the things that the pastor can do is is just teach into the issue and as we've already mentioned kind of normalize this as just being another kind of what all of us experience as as fallen human beings so to take it out of being a, a category on its own and and really just to show it as as one of many expressions of of having a sinful nature so i think that that will help um i think that pastors can can do a lot to make their churches places where it's this is a safe issue to talk about as a Christian. Um, in other words, to give the signal from from the pulpit that we we would expect there to be some Christians in our own fellowship for whom this is an issue, and to make it okay if that's the case for you to share that with other people to to, to welcome people to share that if it's an issue for them. Um, one of the, uh, the mistakes I think pastors have made in, in recent decades is, is to teach on this issue almost entirely as a societal issue that's out there in the big bad world and to neglect to teach to it as a, as a pastoral issue that exists within the church. So I think if we treat the issue mainly as a political football in the culture wars, we're going to make it harder for Christians battling this issue to feel as though that they they can they can admit that and, and share that with Christian friends in their church. So yeah. I think that's one thing is just creating that that we have permission to to share whatever our struggles are with. We're all perverts of one kind or another. Um, this is a level playing field. You know, whoever we are, whatever we battle with in the Christian life, the reason we gather together week by week is because we're 
we're weak people who need a, a gracious God. Yeah, the fact that a pastor may not be having those kinds of conversations in his counseling sessions does not mean that uh, people are not struggling with it in the church. It it may it's probably more likely that they're not feeling comfortable coming forward because most churches are going to have people hope they they probably have people in in them where uh, that are struggling with this. And Absolutely, yeah. So I think it's creating that culture of, of safety. And, and related to that, it, it's, it's not then defining people by this issue once they have raised it. Um, you know, we, we mustn't think just because a Christian has said they struggle with same-sex attraction, we mustn't assume that that is therefore their only sin or even their, the sin that they most struggle with. Um, we were rebuked at my own church recently talking to a, one of my colleagues was talking to a Christian who battles in this area and was asking him how it's going and, and the, the Christian said to him, you do know this is not the only sin I struggle with, right? But it, it, it is the only sin you ever asked me about. Hmm. And that was, a, that, was a, that was a good rebuke actually to, to, to all of us on our, on our staff team, not to sort of define Christians by this one issue if it's, if it's something they do happen to, to battle with. Yeah, that's very helpful. It, it seems one of the one of the difficulties of seeing folks um, as we're thinking about you know how how does a pastor make a a church a safe place for this one one of the difficulties for folks that might be coming out of a lifestyle a homosexual lifestyle that comes to Christ is that that for many of them the homosexual community offers family a sense of family at least I mean it you know support a sense of belonging to something, a, a form of church, and, uh, and that the church needs to answer that with, a, you know, with, with a biblic, the biblical alternative. Absolutely, and so th- this is another huge area, I think, where we need to, to, to up our game. We need to make sure our, our churches are places of, of genuine community and a sense of, of, a sense of family. If, if we have people in our midst who may be facing the prospect of long-term singleness, we need to show them that actually they would have a greater sense of family being in, in the people of God than they would be if they were in the gay community. So everyone's testimony should be that as a result of, of coming to, to faith and getting plugged into a church, that they now have more intimacy in their life than they used to have. But I think we need to work hard at that because I think we don't do friendship in the way previous generations did. We don't do that kind of non-sexual intimacy in the way that other other generations have learned to do in healthy ways. And so we've got to kind of raise our game on this and and make sure that if if we're calling people to to live faithfully to Christ in the face of this particular temptation, that we are making that a viable prospect within our own church fellowships. Sam, we're we're talking here about... uh pastors and how they can relate to the church. Let me, let me just change up the scenario a little bit. How, how can pastors serve those who are being influenced by evangelical Christians who are, who are claiming that monogamous same-sex marriage is, is really fine, it's biblical, it's okay? Um, there are a couple of things pastors can do. One is just to, to show that God's Word is, is clear on this issue. Um, it's not one of those issues where all the passages could go either way. Actually, God's word is is really clear on this issue. Um, when when we get to the issue of 
of marriage and the definition of marriage and the, and the, the context for, for sexual intimacy, we are hitting one of the, as somebody else said recently, we're hitting one of the meta-narratives of Scripture. Um, you know, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. It ends with the marriage of, of Christ and his bride. And the first marriage is the trailer for the second marriage. And so this idea that the union of one man and one woman in, in the covenant of marriage is a picture of the big thing that God is doing in the world of, of winning a people to Jesus Christ. Um, actually, when you see that as being one of the big kind of driving meta-narratives in Scripture, it, it, show, it then provides the rationale for why the Bible says what it does about sex outside of marriage, about same-sex relationships, all that kind of thing. You have to go against the grain of so much in the Bible to try and make same-sex partnerships, even faithful ones, sound like they are supported by Scripture. So I think that's one thing, is to make God's Word very, very clear. I think another thing we can do is, is to try and, and find ways to reflect how God's Word is, is good on this issue. And so I think one of the things we, we, we need more of in the, in the Christian world today is, is narratives on this issue. At the moment, the world has what looks like a whole host of stories of people embracing their sexual identity, of people coming out and supposedly flourishing. I think one of the things we need that will help reassure people and, and be a good witness to the world around us is, is to have more Christians giving testimony to the fullness of life in Christ. You know, people who've come out of this kind of lifestyle and have, have embraced the gospel. So to, to, to give narratives that reflect how actually faithfulness to Christ, living by the word of God, is a way that God has given us to flourish, that actually we flourish more by going with what the Bible says on this issue than we would do if we went against the Bible. So I think we need both of those things. We need to show that the clarity of Scripture and, and to have narratives that reflect the goodness of what we understand the Bible to say on this. That's really helpful, Sam. And uh, before we close out for our listeners, um, Sam has written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And so if you want to do some additional studies, that might be a great place to start. Um, also, I, I just received an advanced copy of Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? That's published by Crossway. Crossway. I, was, I was looking through that a bit in thinking about this interview, and it looks like it's going to be a huge help in answering questions that are, are pushed forward as the church struggles to love and to receive those who are struggling with uh, SSA, same-sex attraction. Sam, it's a great book. It's a great book. Yes, it is, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it circulate, and looking forward to hearing you know some of the conversations that are going to start a, as a result. And speaking of conversations, Sam, thank you so much for this one. Thank you for joining us, interacting with us, educating us, and uh, and sharing your story. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Dave Harvey, and I'm the host of Am I Called, and this is Am I Called podcast. And I just want to remind you that for a wealth of resources on leadership, calling, ministry, whatever, go to uh, amicalled.com. By the way, there's also a free assessment test that you can take there to gain some additional insight on your own calling. Thanks for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast. 
which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit micalled.com.